today, I want you to take God's word, please, and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk. I'll give you like five seconds to do that. I'm sure you'll need much less than that. It's, if you need help, it's right after the book of Nahum. That ought to make it easy for everybody, right? <laughs> everybody, you can go to your, uh, I don't know what page it's on in your Bible. It might be different in every one. This is one that we don't see very often. We call Nahum a minor prophet. But I want to say that there's certainly nothing minor about the message that we get from the book of Habakkuk. There's three chapters here that were in this book, and we're going to look at all three this morning. And uh, don't worry, we're not going to read every verse from all three. But we're going to be speaking on this subject. How to stay together when the world is coming apart. Now let me tell you something. This world today is unraveling. The world is coming apart. The world, if you ask me and you, and you ask me my opinion, I would tell you that the world is winding down. The end of all things is at hand and it's going to end in calamity. Now I'm talking about the world system and we are part of that world system. Now we know that Jesus is coming again, amen? And we know that we are going up in the rapture. Amen? If you're saved. We know that. We know that. And we know that after the rapture of the church, there's going to be a period here on earth known as the Great Tribulation. But let me tell you something. Many of us who live in America have the idea that we are God's darlings. And that's because we're Christians and we also because we are Americans. And we're not going to know any real trouble at any point. But we're going to just live our lives on to a certain degree of tranquility and peace. And then the rapture is going to come and it's just going to take us away. And we're never going to know any harm or trouble. And therefore, we're not going to know any trials or tribulations. So I believe you're right in that we as God's children are not going to go through the great tribulation, which is going to be hell on earth with the Antichrist coming to reign. But let me tell you something. The Bible teaches that coming events many times cast their shadows ahead of time. What did he mean by that? Well, when Jesus was talking about the great tribulation, he mentioned certain terrible things, and he said these things would be the beginnings of sorrows. That is, these are the birth pangs. And we're going to go into a period known as the birth pangs, or the beginning of sorrows. And even though... We will never enter in as believers into the great tribulation. I want to tell you, the people who are living in this age and this day may see some sort of trials, some sort of tribulations like we've never seen before or known before. I'm talking about national and international. You've already started to see that, haven't you? Then I want to say also that many of us, whether we live in a period of tribulation where God comes to judge the world and pestilence and in famine and war, even if we don't live through that, each and every one of us at times will have our own private tribulations, don't we? I mean, we all know some sort of financial problems at some time. We know heartache, we know sorrow, we know sickness, we know trouble, and we know distress. If you're not careful when trouble comes and you pray to God and you ask God to do something about it and God doesn't do it, you're on the threshold of perhaps stumbling. Your mind is going to start working overtime. 
you're sick and you're hurting, you say, God, I want you to heal me in the name of Jesus Christ. And God may not heal you. Then your mind is going to start to work. And the devil's going to whisper to you and he's going to say, if there is a God, he doesn't care about you. On the other hand, if there is a God and he cares about you, he's not able to do anything about it. Your cancer, your sickness is bigger than God. You see, he's going to say, even if there is a God, he's a God that doesn't care about the small things. He doesn't care or he's too weak to do anything about it. Is that true? We know as believers that is not true. You're going to be tempted to think, though, that that is true. Sometimes you're going to be in such deep trouble that you're going to cry out and you're going to say, where is God? Why doesn't he do something about this? But with many people today, they say, how can I believe in a God when I see so much war and crime and rape and strife and murder and hunger and pride in the world today? Where is he? Is he a God who doesn't care or is he a God that can't do anything about it? Or is there a God at all? Well, what do we as believers say to that? How do we combat that? Now that's the problem with some people. That's what the book of Habakkuk answers for us. So I want you to just stay attuned and keep it right here in your lap because you're going to see that even in dark times, God is God. God has not lost control of this world. God does care about you. God has a plan for you, and you need to learn it today. Now, the book has three major divisions. We have chapter 1, which is I want to call the perplexing problem. Chapter 2, we're going to look at, is called the proper perspective. And chapter 3, we're going to look at, is called the profound praise. I want you to look now. We're going to tell you today from the Word of God how to hang together, how to stay together when the world is coming apart, and while everything seems to unravel around us, how we can be cemented, standing firm on that higher ground that is the Lord. Number one, the book begins with a perfect I'm sorry, a perplexing problem. Habakkuk num chapter 1 and verse number 1. Habakkuk 1, 1. It says, it starts off by saying, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. This is a book that just shows a man here that has a crushed heart. He has a deep, deep burden. Now, what was the problem or what was the burden? Well, first of all, as he is going through these problems, he sees that there is a seeming indifference. Look at verse 2. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear. Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Now there's been a great problem in the land. A lot of violence. And so Habakkuk says, I'm going to pray about this violence that's happening in the land. And he prays 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 and then he prays some more. And there doesn't seem to be an answer. Rather than the situation is getting better, it seems to get worse the longer he's praying. And he says, God, how long am I going to cry out to you? And in verse 2, he uses the word cry twice. Look back at that. O Lord, o Lord how long will I cry and thou wilt not hear. Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. The first word here, cry, means cry like a plea for help. But the second word, 
The second cry is a different Hebrew word. And it means a shout or a scream. By the end of this verse, he's quit asking. He starts shouting at God as if he thinks God is deaf or something. Maybe you didn't hear me the first time. God, why don't you do something? I mean, it's almost like he's angry here. He's screaming out. He's pleading to God for help. But God seems silent. Has that ever been the same way with you? Does this sound familiar? Have you ever had a problem and, oh man, you cry out and, and, and you get to the place where you almost start to shout at God because you're so frustrated and, and, and you don't know what's going on. You want to argue with God a little bit. You say, God, why don't you do something about what I'm seeing here? There doesn't seem to be an answer though. And you say, Lord, how long am I going to have to pray about this before you do something? Now the second thing, not only did God seem indifferent to Habakkuk here, but he's also getting frustrated here because it, God had some seeming inactivity. It just seems like God is up there with his arms folded and he's not doing a single thing about the situation in the world. Look, if you will, in verse 3. It says, Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance for spoiling and violence are before me? And there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. He's saying, Lord, haven't you noticed lately? Lord, haven't you looked down here? The world is in a mess. There's violence everywhere. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Habakkuk. And Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 12, he said, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. And in the time of their visitation they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. I was reading some things last week that really burdened my heart. I read last week that we have here in America 450,000 adolescent alcoholics. That seems like a, a huge number. I would, I would wager that number is probably low, Right? I'm talking about boys and girls who are alcoholics, not boys and girls who drink, boys and girls who are alcoholics. This same article went on to say that one quarter, 25% of the high school students get drunk every week in America. 25% every week. But 450,000 adolescent alcoholics. One out of every 10 teenage girls is going to get pregnant. One out of 10. I know 10 teenage girls. For me to think that one of those girls is going to be pregnant as a teenager is crazy to think about. Last year, there was a burglary every 10 seconds in America. Every 10 seconds, somebody decided that someone else's things were going to be theirs, even if they had to take them illegally. And the violence in public schools is out of control in this country. Last year, there were two hundred murders just in schools, 6,000 robberies in schools, 9,000 rapes took place in public schools, 20,000 assaults, $600 million worth of damage by vandalism in the classrooms. And we pray 
and we say, God, what is happening in America today? And we see the murderous rays where streets have become swamps of discontent, there, where, where people looking to commit crime and spread hate breed by the millions. We see racism, we see pornography, we see gambling, we see the spread of liquor and dishonesty and greed and materialism. And we cry out to God and we say, oh God, God, you're the only one who can do anything about this problem. Please, God, do something. Those of us who actually care, which I hope is everybody in this room today, you're in a Bible-believing church on a Sunday morning. I hope that you at least are praying to God to take away this wickedness from our land. But if you've been praying for any long amount of time, it's seeming that God is doing nothing. Habakkuk says, Lord, where are you? Don't you care? You seem indifferent. Why do you seem so inactive? Then the third thing that was a part of his burden was that not only was it God's seeming indifference and God's seeming inactivity, but it was God's seeming inconsistencies. God finally does speak to him, and this is what he says in verse 5. He says, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raised up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Well, that's not the answer he expected, right? God finally does speak, and Habakkuk doesn't even know what he's hearing. God says, all right, all right, you want to know what I'm doing? You don't think I'm doing anything? You think I ought to just come in here and I ought to stop all of this, all of this rape and murder? I ought to stop this crime and greed? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. It's going to get worse. As a matter of fact, Habakkuk, I'm right now raising up a nation, the Chaldeans, better known to us as the Babylonians. They're bitter. That is, they're very cruel. They're hasty, meaning that they're very swift. They're going to march upon the land of Israel. They're going to take this place in captivity, and you are not going to be able to stop it. And he also tells them here, you're not even going to, you wouldn't even believe this if I told you. And sure enough, he didn't. He began to argue with the Lord. Look if, you were, look, if you will, in verse 12. He says, Art thou not everlasting? In other words, Lord, you, don't, you didn't just get here yesterday. You weren't born yesterday. He says, O Lord, God, mine Holy One, we shall not die. That is, Lord, you've got this all mixed up. It's not Israel that needs to be punished. And he continues, says, Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Now he's talking about the Babylonians here. He says, look, not us, Lord. You're, you're picking on the wrong guy, right? The wrong crowd. And here's the rationale. He gives his rationale in verse 13. He says, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. Now, look, notice his argument here. It may seem, because it's in the old English here, it may seem complicated. This is a very simple thing that he's saying here. We've all done this at one point or another. He's saying, God, look, what you're doing here is inconsistent. 
When I ask you to do something about the violence in our land and ask you to do something about the crime in our land and I'm asking you to do something about this sickness that we see in our land, then you tell me you're going to go and bring the Babylonians in to invade us. Now, God, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. How can you, how can you do that? I mean, God, I mean, we're bad, but we're not as bad as they are. I mean, how can you use the wicked to devour a more righteous people? God, that's absolutely inconsistent. I just want to tell you how you might, you know, I just want to tell you how, how might, you might better run your business. And God said, I told you you wouldn't believe me if I told you what I was doing. You wouldn't even believe me. That's the reason why I haven't told you before, Habakkuk. Look, we don't live by explanations as Christians. We live by promises. God is not honor-bound to explain to us things that we couldn't understand and, and we wouldn't receive anyway even if we could. God knows what he's doing and God said, I am raising up these Babylonians to bring them against you. Now again, remember the argument here. He says, now look God, wait a minute, we're bad. I'll admit we've sinned, but, but they are worse than we are. Now is that a kind of philosophy that is old, that is new, that's something that's been used for a long, long time. Let me tell you how most Americans, in my opinion, feel. Most Americans feel this way. We're bad. America, we, we're bad. We have our liquor. We have our crime. We have our abortion. We have our rape. We have our robberies, our pride. We have our materialism that runs rampant through our nation. But at least we say, God bless America. Right? At least we put in God we trust on our money. At least we have churches. At least that's not illegal yet. We're not like the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans. right? We're not like them. We may be bad, but we're not as bad as those countries. And therefore, we're going to be saved if something bad happens. That's the way I think most Americans probably feel. At least that's the way... That's what they hope is going to happen. They're just hoping that everything's going to be fine until the rapture gets here and then we're going to get on out of here. We don't ever think that the Russians could take us over because God is on our side. God's on our side. Russia's never going to come over here and take us over. China's never going to overthrow us. We're the USA. We're a God-fearing country. Isn't that the way we feel? I mean, honestly. God is on our side, right? We're America. That's the way we feel. So we don't ever think that the Russians are going to come over here and take us over. We don't ever think the Soviets or the Chinese or someone like that is going to come over here and take us over. You read your Bible. Read it well. And read it carefully. And you'll find, as far as I can see and am concerned, there is not one shred of Scripture that speaks of American superiority in the last days. There's not one. Now, now, it may happen. I pray to God the Russians don't come over here and take us over, right? And I pray to God for national revival and for national deliverance. I pray for that constantly. But I want to tell you, if revival does not come, if people do not get right, if they do not repent, if they do not trust God, if there is not one, then there is not one promise in the Bible that says that we as a nation are exempt even though we may be a Christian nation. 
The Bible says, unto whomsoever much is given, of the same shall much be required. And God did allow an ungodly, perverse, and degenerate nation that was worse than Israel, by all accounts, to come in and to bring Israel to her knees. Do you know that America almost needs something like that? I hope we don't have it. But let me tell you about America. I think this nation is the greatest nation that the world has ever seen. I think it is. I served in the military proudly, and I cherish all of the unique freedoms that we enjoy. And, I, and, I, and I, I cherish them fiercely. But America has almost been cursed with blessings. One of these days, maybe we'll be blessed with cursings. What do you mean? How, how, how can you say that? Do you know we pray and we ask God to bless us and we have then maybe a little economic upturn? Maybe that's in our personal life. Maybe it's as a nation. Let's just take it in your personal life. What happens then? You get a little bit extra cash in your pocket. God blesses you with some, with some extra financial upturn. What happens? Do we, do we get right with God then? Does everything turn right around? No. no. The liquor begins to flow. The immorality, the divorces, all these things. Even if all of that is out of your life. Many of us get that and we don't thank God right away. How many people, now some, I grant you, how many people got their stimulus check, cash it, and praise God for allowing that extra money to get into your pocket? Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. I wonder if you took a poll of Christians and they were, they were actually honest, how many Christians actually did that? That's my point. That's my point. God is not necessarily protecting the American economy or the American way of life. God is in the business of giving glory to himself. Did you know that? You say, Alan, I don't like that kind of preaching. I don't like it either. Right? I'd much rather come up here and whenever a pastor asks me to preach, come up here and tell you how you're about to get a million dollars in your pocket tomorrow and everything's going to be great for the rest of your life. But I want to tell you somebody else who didn't like it either, and it was Habakkuk. Habakkuk didn't like it either. He says, God, I've been praying. Lord, why didn't you do something? Why are you so silent? And God said, I am doing something. I am doing something, Habakkuk. You want to know what I'm doing? I'm raising up the Chaldean army, and they're going to come in, and they're going to take you over. Now, that was the burden that Habakkuk the prophet had. Number one, God seeming indifference. I cry, and he doesn't hear me. Number two, God seeming inactivity. Number three, God seeming inconsistency, that God is blessing the wrong people. All right? So, number two. In chapter two, we see what we're going to call the proper perspective. So turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to see what we're calling here the proper perspective. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now, thank God for this man, first of all. Now he stops shouting to God, and he starts actually listening to what God has to say. He has a watchtower out in the field somewhere that is a place where he has some quiet time, right? And some tower that he would climb up into, and he would get alone with God. We all need that quiet tower. And so he went out there now, and, and to stop telling God how to run the universe, thankfully, and he begins to listen to what God actually has to say. He says, well, I'm just going to shut up now for a while, and I'm going to listen to God. I'm, I, I, I've given God enough instructions, I think. Hopefully God's got it down. And I've argued with the Lord enough, and evidently the Lord's not in the mood to argue back with me. 
So I think I'll just sit down and still and listen to see what God will say to me. Now that's an innovative thought. And when he did that, God gave him a proper perspective. And God showed him three things that I want God to show to you today. Three things that he never forgot and that you should never forget. The first thing is the reliability of Scripture. Look back at Habakkuk chapter 1 and let's look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me and said, write the vision. He said, just write it down. And make it plain upon tablets that he may run and readeth it. Now, what he said to Habakkuk was this. Habakkuk, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you something here. I'm going to give you a vision. And when I give you this vision, uh, I'm going to give you a revelation. And I want you to write it down. Get some tablets. You know, Write it down. Make it very plain and simple so that people can read it. And that they can run with the message. And what Habakkuk wrote in the book of Habakkuk that we have right here is what we're reading. This is what we're reading. We're reading that revelation. This is what he wrote. This is what he wrote when he was in that high tower is what we're looking at today. Just get it and write it down is what he told him. So he's sitting up there in the high tower and he's writing. Why is he doing that? Because he knew that one day in Napa Vine, Washington, there would be some people like you and like me who would need this message today. Because this is not just what God has said. This is what God is saying today. And so he wrote the message for us. Now, listen to what he said about the message. Listen to what he said about this prophecy in verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come and will not tarry. Basically, it will not continue to tarry, is what that means. Now, what does that mean overall? What does this whole verse mean? It means that God has some eternal promises that are absolutely, totally sure, and you can trust the Word of God. And, and that's the foundation, the bedrock of our faith. Now, in between the beginning and the end, there are things that are going to look confusing. Right? Many times we're going to want to question What's going on? We're going to question God and shout at God and tell God how and why and, and all these things. And, and, and God says, look, Habakkuk, just write it down, make it big, make it plain, make it straight, that God's word is true. And believer, you can trust God's word when everything seems to be coming apart, even when you don't understand what's going on or if you don't initially understand God's word. F.D. Myers said this, he said, If any promise of God should fail, the heavens would clothe themselves with sackcloth, the sun, the moon, and the stars would reel from their courses, the universe would rock, and a hollow wind would, would moan through a ruined creation, the awful message that God can lie. But, but he cannot lie. He cannot lie. And I want to tell you, I'm so grateful to have this book in these days in which we live today. I don't know about anybody else, but there are times, not often, I try to stay away from it, but it's everywhere, when you see the new daily craziness that's happening in our world today. And I don't know about anybody else, but when I get into the Word of God and do my devotions that day, 
it calms my heart and my mind from what I am seeing happening in the world that day. I'm so grateful to be able to turn through the pages of this book, the book of Habakkuk, for example, and every other book, and know that the message that I'm reading cannot be a lie. Though it tarry, I'll just wait for it. The things I don't understand, if I can't understand it, I'll stand on it, and I'll just wait. Have faith in God. He's on His throne. Have faith in God. He watches over His own. He can't fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God and the reliability of the Scriptures. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you today? Have you come to a place where you're going to say, I'm going to take God's Word regardless of what the appearance is, regardless of what everyone else tells me? I'm going to take what is in this book as reliable, as true. Have you ever done that? I hope so. I hope so. Don't you get fooled by appearances and circumstances and start saying, well, there's something that must be wrong with this prophecy. Things are out of whack. Maybe God's not going to keep his word anymore. Maybe the earth won't be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Maybe the meek will not inherit the earth. Maybe Jesus won't reign again. Habakkuk said, look, if it doesn't seem to be happening on time, just wait. Just wait. God can't lie. He will not fail. And that's the first thing. He showed him. Number one was the reliability of Scripture. Scripture's reliable. If you don't see it right now, just wait. Number two, the second thing that he showed him was the retribution of the sinner. Now maybe Habakkuk thought that God was soft on sin and Habakkuk thought that he was going to lecture God about how God should go ahead and punish the Babylonians. Um, well, if you look in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, he begins to talk about the sinner. And he says in verse 5, Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man that neither keepeth a home, who enlargeth his desire as hell and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him? and a taunting proverb against him, and say, woe to him. And then in verse 6, you have the word woe, referencing dishonesty. In verse 9, it begins with woe unto him, referencing greed. In verse 12, woe unto him, referencing violence. In verse 15, you see woe unto him, referencing immorality. In verse 19, it says woe unto him, referencing idolatry. Lots of woes in there. From verse 6 all the way down to verse 19. And God says, Habakkuk, listen to me, son. I know about all these sins. And I'm going to judge every single one of them. Are you listening to what I'm saying today? If you're a sinner here, without Christ, don't ever think, don't ever think that because God is not judging your sin now, that God will never judge your sin. Don't you ever think that God has let sin get by? Suppose these Babylonians come down all cocky. They say, well, there's a God. He doesn't judge sin. Look, we're, look what we're doing to his people. Ha! There's no God here. But God says, I have a record of every single one of those Babylonians. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And I'm here to tell you this morning, there's not one half of one sin that's going to go overlooked. Ever. Right? 
Somebody said this, the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Now when this man finally got quiet, he showed him first all of the reliability of Scripture. You can bank on it. He showed him the retribution of the sinner. God will punish every sin. The third thing he showed him was the reign of the Savior. That Jesus Christ indeed will rule. And indeed he is going to reign. Look in chapter 2 and verse 14. What a promise. Put a star by it, underline it, highlight it, whatever you do in your own Bible, but you should be thanking God for this scripture. It says in verse 14, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters that cover the sea. Isn't that a beautiful promise? I tell you, we look around at, our, at the state of our nation. We look at the state of our state. And we see crime. We see hate. We see disorganization. We see disintegration. We look in our world and we see war. We see strife. I tell you, as surely as my name is Alan Harrell, as surely as I stand in this pulpit today, as surely as there is a God in heaven, Jesus is going to be victorious over all that we see. Jesus is going to be victorious. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters that cover the sea. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And all the force of hell and all the powers of sin and all the doubts of the people will never stop the enthronement of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It cannot be stopped. What did he tell us? Just wait for it. Don't tire. It'll come. It might be today. It might be right now. It wasn't right now. It might be later, right? We're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. It'll come. Wait on it. The scriptures can't lie. Do you believe that today? If you believe that, then it's something you can hold on to because there's going to be a lot of things that you don't understand that are going to happen in this world. There's going to be a lot of things that you don't know. We just need to get off in our high tower, sit down, stop shouting at God, and let God start speaking to us. Now the third thing I want you to see. The first thing was the perplexing problem. The second thing was the proper perspective. He got in his high tower and God gave him a proper perspective. God showed him some things. Now the third thing is profound praise. Is his profound praise. The third chapter of the book of Habakkuk, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3 reaches the highest pinnacle of praise. I don't believe there's any higher praise in all the Bible than you'll find here in the third chapter of the book of Habakkuk. It's absolutely, absolutely and totally profound. Notice how it begins in verse 1. He says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shigonoth. Now, since you all know what Shigonoth is, I'm not even going to comment on that. I'm going to go on to the next verse. Right? What does he mean by Shigonoth here? A prayer of the prophet of Habakkuk upon Shigonoth. Shigonoth, some people feel, means some kind of musical instrument. Of course, that's probably all those crazy music people, right? Music people always think everything revolves around music, right? That's why they have, they have symbols that everybody can't read and stuff that's so hard to play, music people. 
but I think most commentators have agreed that that's not what this means overall. This is a Hebrew word which means with deep feeling. And the word upon may also mean not only upon, but according to. So that is, if we said with some plain English here, it's a, it's a prayer according to deep feeling. Right? Does that make sense? So what has happened is, is that the heart of this prophet Habakkuk is bursting with joy. And he's saying, this is not just any ordinary prayer that I'm praying here. This is a prayer that is upon Shiganath. It's a prayer with deep, deep feeling. And God has shown me something, and my eyes are brimming with tears, and my lips are bursting with praise because of what I've seen. Now, you want to learn how to praise in dark days, like today? You want to have victory when you don't seem to understand? When there's a lot that doesn't make sense to you, and it seems like heaven is closed? And it seems like God is inactive? And it seems like God is indifferent. You better learn this third chapter. And let me tell you about this praise. The very first thing about this praise is that it is rooted in revelation. God gave to Habakkuk a revelation of himself, not what God is doing, but just who God is. Now that is profound. You see, that's far more important. It is far more important. God couldn't explain to us what he's doing anyway. Why? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth are His ways above our ways and His thoughts above our thoughts. So it's better to know who than it is to know why. Isn't that right? Haven't you, haven't you found that in your life? It's better to know who God is and then I can trust in Him than always to know why something is happening. So many times when we get in trouble, what do we say? God, why? Why is this happening? Sometimes it will be almost impossible for our minds to understand the why. We need to keep focused on the who. We think if God explained it to us, then we'd feel better. Look, I suppose if God explained it to us, we'd probably feel worse. We'd say, no, God, you've got it wrong. Just like Habakkuk did, right? That's not the way that you do it. That's, I don't want this. I don't want this trial, this tribulation. And so God doesn't explain it to us. He just throws himself to us. And you see, here this prophet got a revelation of God. Now let me show you something here that's really cool. Verse 3. All right, look at verse 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. All right, if you got your highlighter out again, if you got your, your, uh, your pen or whatever it is, put a circle, an underline, whatever it is, that word Selah, S-E-L-A-H. That's, that's a strange word, isn't it? Selah. What does it mean? All right? To help us understand, let's look in verse 9. Very good. Let's look at verse 9. It says, Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oath or the paths of the tribes, even thy word, there it is again, Selah. Right? There it is. Let's look at verse 13. Thou wentest forth from the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed, and woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundations unto the neck, Selah. Man, 
There it is again. What does this word seal mean? Do you, did you know that this is the only book to use that word except Psalms? This is the only place in the Bible where you're going to find Selah except Psalms. So what is it? Why does David, when he's writing a psalm, all of a sudden he'll just say Selah? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, those music people again. Well, this is the psalm like a rest in music. Right? And, and what it means is just pause and think about it. Just pause and think about it. Meditate on what I just said. Now what happens is this. Here's the prophet. He said, I'm going to praise God with such deep emotions. I am so excited. You see, what God did in verse 3, there was a revelation of God's majesty. How God came from Paran and Teman. And, and that's where the law was given, where the thunderings and the quakings were on Mount Sinai. That's what was going on in this area. That speaks of the majesty of God. And next time he says, Selah, it speaks of God's mercy. In verse 9, he mentions the rainbow and speaks of God's mercy. That God's majesty goes along with his mercy. He keeps covenant. And then in verse 13, it speaks of God going forth to make war on his enemies and bring salvation through his anointed to the people. That speaks of God's might. And you see, what happens is this, that Habakkuk forgot the question, why? And he turned his attention to who? A God of majesty, a God of mercy, a God of might. Now, you're, you're reasonable people for the most part, right? Let's look up here and let me ask you a question. If God is a God of majesty, that is, he rules over all. And he is a God of mercy, which means that he loves you. And he's a God of might. Don't you think that you ought to think about it? Don't you think that that would be something that he would want you thinking about? That's why he put Selah. 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 Just think about it for a second. Don't, do you know why people don't praise the Lord? They, they just don't know the Lord. They just don't know God. You see, praise is rooted in revelation. It understands that even though you don't understand, He understands. There's no panic in heaven. There's only praise in heaven. God is not panicked right now. God wasn't panicked the first day that we saw a chop in Seattle, and He, was, he isn't panicking now. God isn't panicking when we are mad because we have to wear a mask going into Walmart. God isn't panicked at all about that. God isn't panicked about what school schedule our kids have. He isn't panicked about what's in our bank account. That, none of that panics the Lord. There is only praise in heaven. You notice how chapter 2 ends. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple... Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see, God is in heaven. There's no panic in heaven. The Babylonians may invade the temple down here. They can't invade the one that's up there. Quit arguing with God. Quit trying to tell God how to run his universe. God's in control. He's never lost control. The very hairs on your head are numbered. There's not a blade of grass that blows in the wind that God doesn't know about. There's not a grain of sand upon the seashores and all the earth that God does not know the number of. God knows the exact shape, size, and dimension of every snowflake that lands on the earth. 
He is in His holy temple. Think about His mercy. Think about His majesty. Think about His might. Praise is rooted. Praise is rooted in revelation and praise recognizes reality. You say, well, you Christians, you always praise Him. You, you, you just act like there's nothing wrong. You, you, you don't know the situation that I'm in. Everybody always thinks their situation is, is so unique. Well, you look at verse 16 of this chapter, and you're going to see something else here. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones. I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Do you know what that means? Habakkuk said, I'm scared stiff. I'm scared, man. He said, when I think about what's going to happen, my stomach churns. When I think about what's going to happen, my lips tremble. When I think about what's going to happen, my bones turn to rot. A Christian who praises is a realist. He's not some sentimental optimist, nor is he, nor is he some sort of morose pessimist. He sees it exactly as it is. Dark days may come, but now watch. Over here he sees, uh, he's seen God in all of his glory. Over here he sees the world in all of its misery. And now I want you to see where praise comes. Praise roots in revelation. Praise recognizes reality. Are you ready between these two? Now watch it. Praise results in rejoicing. Verse 17. And although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Verse 18. Yet, all men. That's another one. It seems insignificant. But that's a, that's a great word there when you're looking at verse 18. Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet and he will make me walk upon mine high places. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying if my standard of living changes, my standard of life, will never change. And it doesn't make any difference. I mean, he says, if the stock market tumbles in and there's nothing on the shelves in the supermarket, and if, we're, if there were something on the shelves in the supermarket, we wouldn't have enough money to buy it probably anyway because we're broke, and there are no jobs listed in the want ads, and war is imminent, and, and the, the Babylonians of today are coming and they're camped out at our border, what do we do? We praise God. Amen. You've, do you have that kind of faith today? Do you have the kind of faith that when things are going wrong, you say praise God? You see, where is your joy? We see it in verse 18. Yet will I joy in the God of my salvation. He did not get his joy from circumstances. He, he had a revelation of God's greatness. He had a realism to the mess that the world was, but he said, my joy, my joy is in the Lord. Now, 
folks, if you're learning a lesson from the book of Habakkuk, you have learned a mighty lesson. Amen. The, the book of Habakkuk that we've looked at today is, is profound. He says, you make my feet like hinds feet. That is, I'm going to be like a, a sure-footed gazelle. And I'm going to be on the mountain peak shouting glory all the way. Because this is my Father's world. We need to live like that today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time. And with everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I want to say something really quickly. Maybe today you're a believer and you say you're in trouble, you're hurting, God loves you so much. God's majesty, God's mercy, God's might are so real today. And God wants to come for many of you today. For many, God wants to give you financial help. For many, God wants to bring you out of deep waters. But, friend, if he has a higher plan and a better plan, I'll tell you, even though you don't understand it, he loves you so much. He has such a plan for you. Rest in his love. Joy in the God of your salvation. When you go home today, read Habakkuk 3.17 over and over again. And if you don't know Jesus, you can know him today. I just want to ask two quick questions, and this is just so that we can... I want to pray for you more specifically and more perfectly today if I can. Maybe you're today, here, here today, and you say... Look, Brother Allen, I am a believer. I, there is a time that I know that the Lord has, has saved me. I've asked him to come into my heart and save me. But I am, 